we've been trying to, uh, at least in the first episode, we've been trying to open these by mangling a couple Deadwood quotes to get these podcasts started. But let's leave it alone this time, Clay, because I'm stupidest when I try to be funny. Ah, I did it anyway. I got it. I got it in there. I really liked when he told, uh, he said, keep lying and I'll kill you right in that chair. Mm-hmm. It's very good line delivery. And I also liked, um, <laughs> what's the one where he says, uh, when Saul says he ain't angry and then he says he's got a, he's got a mean way of being, mean nice. way of being happy. Yeah. yeah mean, mean way, way of being, being happy. happy. Yeah. 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 That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> we should just turn this into, you know how like, if you cover like a, a a comedy show, it just turns into people just saying the bits that they like and yes. chuckling about it. We should just it should be an hour of just favorite quotes. It's tough. I'm I'm concerned because uh, I think the first per- podcast went fine. I think that I think that we're going to settle into a groove. I, I can already see, think I, that this episode there's going to be less of like the plot mechanics of what went on because I think the show is actually settling into itself. But you mm-hmm. do run into. Um, the danger of just like, I just have a screen full of quotes here from the episode and you want to avoid just being like, I'm going to wait till Clay says something that relates to a wheelbarrow and then I'm going to say the wheelbarrow quote right after that. It's, it's tough to avoid. <laughs> anyway. We can just talk for an hour about Nick Offerman's dick if you want to. <laughs> well, we're going to get right into this podcast for Deep Water right after Clay puts his iron away. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. All right, everybody. So this is Deep Water, the second episode of Deadwood. It was directed by Davis Guggenheim, written by Malcolm McRory. In this episode, Doc Cochran does his best to hide the little girl who survived the Mets family massacre from Swearingen. Utter convinces Hickok to take appearance money to gamble in one of the local joints. Garrett tries to work his claim with the assistance of Dan Doherty. Johnny Burns tells Swearingen that he's learned that Ned Mason was behind the Mets attack and was likely working with his brother Tom in Persimmon Phil. Here's my counteroffer to your counteroffer, Swearingen tells Bullock and Star. Go fuck yourself. Doc entrusts Jane with the task of protecting the little girl. Swearingen enlists Tom Mason to kill Hickok. A Mason gets gunned down. Doherty goes to kill the Mets go, but Doc Cochran stands him down. Utter and Jane grab the child and head for the hills. Swearingen murders Persimmon Phil to ensure his silence. So there we are. So uh, how did, did you notice any visual difference in this one? We're, the show's kind of settled into what it eventually looks like almost immediately. And it, uh, it, I think it looks very distinct from the pilot. But what do you think? Yeah, it does. It's um, The lighting is a lot more... It's still moody, but it's a lot more even. Um, yes. It doesn't have no that... No flickering uh, lights on people's faces all the time. <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't have that like really kind of like flagged off heavy shadow kind of look to it um which i think would be i I think it's a good move because it looked fine in the first episode but i think that look might get a little tiring after a while Um, it's just a little i i think the this episode looks better than the pilot does actually i agree i do too yeah it's um i think it also kind of fits the show too because i i think i can sort of see moving into the second episode where milch and um walter hill might have had disagreements about how the show should look in that I think that Walter Hill was approaching it more like this is a standard Western that we're going to mm-hmm. do, and I'm going to put sort of standard Western-y look to it. And the thing that I noticed about this one, and I don't know if it's if it's just this episode, but much like the pilot, the show continues to not do a lot of big long shots of nature in any way. Like mm, I think there's two yeah. shots of people being outside in this one, and both of them 
uh, like there's the one where they're burying Ned Mason, where they're digging the the grave for him. That's kind of a wide shot. And then I think Brom digging in his riverbed is the other wide shot that shows environment. Yep. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, the show is almost claustrophobic when it's inside the buildings and stuff like that, and it's inside the town. And I thought that the way that this one was shot and the way that it looked is much better to see the structures of the town and like the architecture of things and how like grimy and still being built it is. There's a lot of shots of people like Al coming down the stairs of the gem saloon and it's kind of looking up at the, uh, like the rafters of the gem, the roof of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think it, I think it fits the material better the way that they're shooting here, which is that they're not kind of in this like Western stock Western thing where there's characters in the shadows and it's all torchlight and stuff like that. It's more, it's more developed than that, and you really need to see the infrastructure coming up around them. And I think it does it better than the second one. Yeah i um i didn't I didn't really get a great sense of the layout of the town in the first episode. Yep. And I think they do a much better job with that here. They keep things a little bit wider on the streets, so you can see um more movement and stuff. And like honestly, <laughs> one of the most helpful things in the entire episode, as far as telling me where everything is is when calamity jane points out where the doctor's office is in yeah. relation to the gem <laughs> it's just down the road <laughs> yeah i was like oh okay that makes sense i know how this is shaped now but yeah that one um that I, one long shot when they're buried when they're burying the guy um they show a long shot of the town and i was wondering if that was a real long shot or if it was like cgi or something because I, I i don't know why it would be cgi but you never know depending on what the surrounding is supposed to look like i think it's actually um, the town i think that's what the ranch looks it is. like okay. it's in it's in kind of a little valley like that yeah all right i was just the only reason i thought it was might have been cgi was because i i think i don't know if like the light was hitting it weird or something but it made me think oh i wonder if they digitally put that in there because i need it to be in a certain um, no, I don't. I don't think this. But. Yeah, I don't think the show ever went to trouble of location shooting and stuff. I think it's all, yeah. and I, I think that ties into why there's so few establishing shots of things because they're not mm-hmm. literally there to do it, so they can't do it. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a little. Um, I have a little map of the town in one of the books that I have, which is basically it's just the main street and it has sort of a side street, and then there's a Chinese alley off the side street, and that's pretty much it. So it's really just three roads, uh, if you want to think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I um. Having a, a better sense of the size of the place too, and how small it actually is, uh, I think goes a long way to kind of um, showing you how incestuous everything is. Yeah, because I mean the thing the thing with these kinds of stories is, depending on the town, there's a, a inevitably going to be some uh, suspension of disbelief as to how all these people keep crossing paths with each other. Mm-hmm. But if if the, the entire town is like six buildings, then everybody is just going to be... They all eat breakfast packed. at the same diner. They right. all go to the same Yeah, place. they all go to the same the hotel, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's um, And really, the, there's only a couple characters that you don't see who don't live in the, who you do see that don't live in the town. It's basically Ellsworth. He's like the only regular character that does not seem to live oh, in sure. the town. Yeah. And he lives by his, uh, his claim and things like that. So, yep, this is deep water, the second episode. So, um, the title itself comes from, uh, a reference to Hickok when he's gambling and he's losing all of his money. And the, 
the bartender Tom Nuttall, who's is uh, giving him credit, says that hate to see you get in any deeper water or something like that. I hate to see the water get more deep than it is or something like that. What would be your opinion, far as me getting another fifty? You want another fifty in credit? If that's all right with you. Yeah, I suppose so. Play poker. No good at it. You let that slow you down. Fell in the far corner to your right and tends me harm. When he makes his move, would you keep an eye on the man with him? You bet. See the fellas I mean? Yes, I do. Thanks, Montana. Wouldn't want the water getting no deeper than this, Mr. Hickok. Fair enough. Pretty much sums up the episode, I think. Um, it's an episode that's built around the theme of trouble is filling the camp and everyone is doing things that are kind of escalating situations that they're involved in. And I think that the the way that the episode sort of twists them together is that it takes a larger view of, it sort of takes this weird like cosmic look at stuff and it says that a lot of intentions that people do don't come out the way that you expect them to. And we can get into all the narratives there. But I think like Doc Cochran has the... Um, the semi-famous line about I see as much misery out of them moving to justify themselves as those that set mm-hmm. out to do harm. And I think that's pretty much the theme of the episode. What do you think? Yeah, I really, I thought that scene with him and Jane was really, really great. Um, it it turns the doctor into a, a a very unique kind of character. He He's really great. Like car- character-wise, I think focusing in on him and Jane was a great move because those are two characters who very easily could become stock sort of background cliche kind of characters. And they go, it seems like they go out of their way to show how complicated and interesting they actually are uh, here. And it makes the, having the doc be this guy who's sort of like has no nowhere else to go and is beholden to his masters but still has this and is you know some sort of addict but is still conscious of right and wrong and the dangers of both of them uh is very interesting a doctor who he, he he's sort of similar to bullock in the way that bullock represents police in like a law and order aspect to things like down to his personality they, mm-hmm. they twist bullock a little bit to make him essentially be a bad cop in terms of what he is as a personality but cochran is a character who's a doctor who is sort of fundamentally driven by the you know do no harm thing that the hippocratic oath that doctors mm-hmm. are supposed to be sworn to but mm-hmm. he's in a situation where he finds that very difficult to do all the time so his his actions are to try to sort of maximize the Hippocratic Oath in in a world where it's not really very easy for him to do without him coming under some kind of harm as well. And he obviously he has scenes in this one where he freaks out about it because he gets so stressed by the fact that he can't do things that he wants to do uh, when he snaps at Al after he's tending to the whores and the gem and stuff mm-hmm. like that and says, I know what I am and I know what I can't be. Um, and so it, it comes down to that. He's, he's frustrated in the same way that Jane is frustrated. And I think that's why they connect as characters in their scenes give these girls a good going over doc look to them like they're your own don't tell me my job or how long to do it in 
I can see to them, and I can see to the way I'm goddamn able, and that is all I can goddamn do. Ooh, what's your time of the month, huh? I really like that scene, too, because he, he does he makes this big display of talking back to Al, and then Al just completely brushes him. This This is a big, this is a really good episode for Al as far as showing his um how in his intimidation factor and how uh confident he is of everything at least uh outwardly with you know because the doctor gives him this big emotional kind of like uh clap back and al's just kind of like whoa he goes this, yeah he gives him a it's a it's that time of month What's, yeah what time dog. of month is it for you buddy <laughs> yeah. and then just like leaves and just completely writes him off and yeah. the whole the whole zigzag, you know, back, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the ping-ponging? Is there, they're, they're yeah, back the, and forth. The, the ping-ponging and the, uh, the the twisting that he does when he's talking to Bullock is really good. Al um, has great scenes. I, I, I love the Bullock scene. Al's, I really love the scene where Al gets Persimmon Phil to hang himself with more rope as he explains that he knows everything that happened as Persimmon yeah. Phil's the... the one of the two that comes back when the guy is fucking in the other room, he's trying to explain to Al what's been going on, but Al knows the truth of everything. And he sort of lets out bit by bit and gets the guy more nervous, the more nervous as the conversation yeah, is going yeah. on. He kind of pulls the same, he pulls the same thing with this guy. I, I, I think it's, it is a testament to him understanding how intimidating he actually is because he pulls the same shit with this guy that he did with Driscoll in the last episode where he basically kind of just like looked at him in an angry way and didn't really say much and yep. the guy just hung himself essentially. Yep. What's that Tom carrying on in there? Bad luck he wasn't here yesterday. Yeah, what'd we miss? Squarehead family I could have tipped you to heading back to Minnesota. Well off? Worth still trying to catch, are they? Sue already caught up with them, did from last night on the road to Spearfish. Heathen cocksuckers. So we missed a good score there, did we? Keep lying. I'll murder you in that chair. I'm gonna tell you what happened, Al. And this is God's honest truth. We come on that family by accident. Nobody's trying to hold out your end or anything of the sort or conceal a goddamn thing. That's your end right there. Weighed to the ounce. Uh, my problem was uh, we didn't clear this with you. And you know how you get. Al, I mean, you know that yourself. Uh, my problem was bringing up the subject. But, uh, that's all weighed out there. You know why I get how I get? Yeah, you, you want to see over the job? You don't like loose ends? I appreciate that. Don't like messes. Things done half-assed, bags of shit left to hold. There's no loose ends here, Al. I'll guarantee you that much, right? Because I got a whole operation here to consider. <laughs> Listen to Tom. One of the squareheads lived. No. No? I'm saying that's pretty hard to believe. I believe you, but uh, we seen to him pretty good. They brought it back to camp. It's over at the Sawbones. Is it talking? I mean, can it speak English? Because when we seen to him, they was all screaming in Squarehead out. Where's Ned Mason? That's a fucking story right there, Al. If you knew the fucking problem. Well, when, when comes to Squarehead's time, 
He spooks and rides off. Tom's in my hands as full as they was doing what we had to do, so God knows where he got off to. But your cut there, that reflects he's out. There's no cut he there. He came here. Say no again, I'll murder you where you fucking sit. He swore he'd head to Cheyenne. Yeah, but he was close, isn't it? All you cocksuckers go for the easiest chance. So, where is he now? Where he is now, is he? Stirs the whole camp up last night with his massacre story till I'm giving liquor away and cunt at half price just to keep my crowd controlled. Party makes up from Nuttles to ride back out to Spearfish. Wild Bill Hickok and those two guys walk past you downstairs to save the squarehead kid. Tell Ned to stick around till they see what the kid has to say about him. Wild Bill Hickok? And Ned throws down. Against Wild Bill Hickok? Against Hickok and this other cocksucker who draws almost as fast, so it's a toss-up. Who blew Ned's head off? Christ, Al. I'm really sorry for the bother. You know, that's I, I really like the way they kind of show him touching on different parts of what's going on and getting information by using little uh, inferences that he's gotten and, and implications that he's got that he knows. Well, he has an idea. He, he thinks he knows what's going on. And he's just he's playing dumb in certain places to get more information out of people like when he's talking to Saul and, and Bullock about um while bill being part of their being a, a silent partner yeah. and all this kind of stuff <laughs> yeah. you know and how quickly how quickly Saul jumps to say that they don't know who know the guy and stuff like it's 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 a really fun chess game from him i don't even know if i'd call it chess i feel like he's playing checkers or something cuz these people are all idiots yeah but. he's 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 super, like i mean he's he's dealing with master negotiator seth bullock right who's just like right. the like, fuck it's, did you say to me <laughs> it's interesting because they position these two guys as antagonists obviously cuz you know they're essentially the two leads of the show well, and but it's a like, traditional. If you were, it's not unreasonable to call this a crime drama TV show either. So oh, sure. You, you think that yeah. Bullock's the cop and Swearingen is the crime boss, so they're going to square off against each other. Yeah, um, but what's interesting is, like, I feel like coming out of this episode, if I was Al, I would be like, "Oh, I've got this guy's number, no problem." Like he he very quickly gets him to to blow his top, and just by kind of like talking circles around him and he's clearly quick to violence um you know i feel like he gives him the uh hands up don't shoot i got i I got whiskey in my hands (laughs) just turning around mr swearingen yeah that's right saul star seth bullock rent on lot four lot four the hardware boys huh yeah i want to buy you fellas a drink how's business on that lot hell of a spot isn't it any more foot traffic, you'd have to call it a riot. Now, I'm turning back slow. Nothing in hand but this whiskey bottle. Well, I heard you're not a man. I want mistaken my intentions. Who says that? I'd like to ask him what they mean. A fella drew on Seth this morning. Never heard him. No one mistook his intentions. Let's leave it all alone. I am stupidest when I try to be funny. It's intentional on Al's part, right? Like Al, oh yeah, like yeah. It, it's it's well written enough. Like Al is doing all this because I think that it's a well enough written show that I find Al's justification, which you later explains to Saul, is that like I don't know you from a hole in the wall. Like how the fuck am I supposed right. to get to know you? 
unless we enter this arrangement for a little bit because it's actually fairly re- it's not a reasonable it's an, not an unreasonable ask honestly no I, and that's and I, I think that he's like Bullock comes out the worst for the wear in this because Bullock starts off being unable to take what's clearly a joke about him mm-hmm. and then it builds into this he can no longer deal with this person and it's that's the that's the thing about Bullock is that Bullock represents this sort of law and order influence but Bullock himself is this like deeply unsettled rage monster within him mm-hmm. and he only control like he's sort of desperate for order because he realizes how out of control he is on yeah. on the inside. And well, and not even on the inside. I I think part of his the way that he's been acting is that he is so just out of his depth in general here. Yeah. Because, you know, like we talked about in the last episode, he's never been a salesman before, so he's put in a weird place there. The only pla- the only time in the episode where he really feels confident is when he's fucking shooting a guy in the face. Yeah. So <laughs> Well, this that's the that's the order aspect. He's entering right, a world right, right. where he does not know the rules that he's supposed to engage exactly. in and yes. he's uncomfortable by it. Yeah. And which is and they do it in a it's just played out so so well because I don't think anybody I don't think Saul or anybody else would ever uh, deign to say that to his face, but they they play it out pretty well. Where they, uh, it's a nice inversion of the of the traditional Western character who strolls into town, have being completely in control of the situation, competent, yeah, yeah. yeah. And now you've got your in, in this version, you've got your. Uh, your Marshall gunslinger character who doesn't know what the fuck's going on and getting really frustrated by it. <laughs> it's it's so interesting. It's because, you know I, we talked about it earlier. Milch had this sort of like Milch's main complaint about westerns is that he thinks that the like laconic cowboy a few words is a byproduct of the Hayes Code and like the limitations that were put on characters. So sure. So his argument is that basically the strong silent type became the model of things in a way that the games of language doesn't really allow. So it, it, it's it's hard to describe, but it's basically like the strong silent type is always going to be correct when in reality there's more of like there's more of these like language games that seem to be more natural to people and that like when people are doing deals and stuff and this kind of thing, it's it's not a you don't win by just being the Clint Eastwood strong silent type who goes in and is just morally correct in these situations. Yeah. And so like the language game is really interesting because Swearingen is much better at the language game than Bullock is. And Bullock's strong silent type, like repressed, emotionally constipated character has a hard time dealing with it. And he usually comes out worse for wear, although he... He's interesting because he he will recognize once he steps away and cools down what he needs to do, but he can't do it in the moment, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, like the way he comes around on the deal later in the episode. Yeah. Clearly he's had some time to reconsider and there's, you know, uh, thought about it a bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it is it is interesting because like, I <clears throat> would, you, would you say that he's the only character who doesn't really have a grasp on who he is or where, where his, what his place is. Cause I'm on the fence about it because I feel like a lot of them do, but then I feel like he and probably calamity Jane don't Hickok doesn't Hickok doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, yeah, I think that they are, I think one of the strengths of the show is that the characters are kind of, 
they are they are they're written as sort of archetypes in one way but i think that they're actually all deeper than that too at the same time like it's hard to there's not a lot Mm -hmm. of shows that i feel that really characterize people as multifaceted in the way that this show does and i think that bullock definitely sticks out as someone who is unsure of where he needs to be and what's going on but i think that as much as al is in control of the situation al is also unsure of what he needs to do and where he needs to be and he's just better. The The main difference between the way that the two of them react is that Al is much better in thinking on the moment about what needs yeah. to happen than Bullock is. Bullock is laser focused on the thing that he wants. And if if anyone disagrees with the thing that he wants, he gets upset with them. And Swearingen is much more fluid in like how he talks to the people. Mm-hmm. He lets them give him information and then he makes a decision on it. Ultimately, at the end of this episode, he has to not go through the plan that he was planning to do and adapt to a new situation to come out mm-hmm. the way that he wants to. So I think that there's, I think that they're, they're both kind of, everyone in the town is a little bit out of water in the sense that they don't know where they really fit, but some of them are just built better as personalities to adapt to situations better than other ones are. Yeah, I think Al's biggest problem is he's surrounded by idiots. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and he, he says it in this. It's a bunch of people giving him bags of shit that he has sold. Yeah, like I do think it is fairly truer to life um, where all of these plans that he has end up going. Like the thing that I find so fascinating about it is his plans end up going screwy because the person that he's working with isn't smart enough to follow his his his. Uh, um, uh, directions directions and they are and they are dumb enough to think that they can do something like make it better yes like, do something better like put another another extra uh I don't, my words aren't coming for me at this moment but you know what i mean where it's yeah. like like in the last one where the guy takes him to twenty thousand instead of stopping at 16s like he thinks he's doing a good thing but he's actually fucking the whole plan up right but he thinks he's being clever like he's surrounded by a lot of those guys and yes. so that gets difficult to work with when you've got everybody thinks they're the pink panther trying to do something on the sly and they end up just looking like idiots that's per per simon phil the guy that he sort of uh gets all the information from man that guy deserved to fucking die because (laughs) that that whole last scene knowing knowing that al spent all that time to go into a safe to get a knife yeah (laughs) better die that guy if if i was him and i saw al going to that safe and like opening it up and taking all this time and i'm like okay so like you know we're good right Uh uh-huh okay i'm just gonna go i'm just gonna go and then i would immediately fucking leave yeah and and never return to deadwood you're sure that girl doesn't know what you look like well i'm confident that girl don't know what i look like but no i can't guarantee you that to a moral certainty and I, I know you got your whole operation here you got to consider, and uh, you don't need to be worried or, or troubled about, uh, well, as far as that girl recognizing me, no matter if it's the slimmest or the slim of possibilities. So, so what do you want me to do? You want me to just stay out of camp and, until you deal with all this? Why don't I do that, Al? How about you have Johnny check under the rock, and I'll put messages under the rock, and then I'm going to check under the rock uh, every day, and... See if you want to send messages to me. They're on the side of caution. That's a, is that a plan?
Hey, uh, Al, I think I got time to put my brand on a little snatch before I go. But he, of course, he's drawn in because he wants to screw one of the whores on his way yeah, out. Yeah, his, his, la- his last line is, uh, mind if I put my brand on a little pussy? Yeah. And he's stabbed. Dumbasses. <laughs> yeah, he's he's. I do feel bad for for Nick Offerman's character, though. I think that guy got got he got dirty. the he got the the shit end of the stick. That's the other. Yeah, and and I think that that's one of the interesting one of the themes about it that I think is interesting about this one, besides the fact that trouble is brewing for everyone and seeing how it works. Oh, and before before we get to that, we can. I had one small point that I think. Um, uh, not to endlessly compare things to Star Trek. It's just that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this listen to the Star Trek podcast, and I fucking I have watched too much Star Trek. But <laughs> one of the things that Deadwood does, like really strongly, I think, and is the sign of great writing, is that there are stories in this episode that are um, purely plot move the chess piece to somewhere else to get it somewhere for the next episode. I, I think most clearly mm-hmm. it's uh, the Brom and Alma Garrett with the gold mine thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The episode does not waste its time doing too much of their scenes with them. You know, it, it recognizes that it's just these characters need to move to the next episode. So they're going to have a scene where Brom recognizes that he's getting screwed out of something. We're going to move on to it. It doesn't really tie thematically into the rest of the episode. Right. But the episode doesn't spend half its runtime focusing on that it just does it enough to say this is what's happened now let's get back to the point of the actual episode you know i I did i did actually really appreciate how instead of drawing out uh what's her name alma alma yeah instead of drawing out alma's addiction to laudanum or whatever the doctor is like how about we just uh i just give you this shit and you let me focus on people who actually need (laughs) me just stop (laughs) fucking around here i was like awesome great so we don't have to Deal with eight episodes of her hiding her addiction, having the vapors and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> replenished your supply of medicine. Thank you, Doctor. I'm very grateful for your attention. I only wish my symptoms would subside. If I were to tell you that I would see to your requirements, whether you had symptoms or not, do you suppose that would help you to heal? I don't know what you mean. I believe you do, madam. I believe we understand each other. There are people in this camp in genuine need of my attention. Make this adequate to your purposes for the next several days. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, it's how every uh, medical marijuana doctor felt, I think, I'm sure, in the early yes. 2000s or something. I also, I also was legitimately uh, impressed that um, Garrett came to his senses so quickly. <laughs> Uh, for the gold mine, yeah, for yeah, yeah for yeah. immediate immediately being like, eh, I think I got bamboozled here. Maybe I could find my way out of this. Yeah, he seems to. I always, I sort of wonder if he's if he's using the bamboozling as a justification because it, it always comes across to me that he realizes he doesn't like doing it before he then motivates oh, himself yeah. to. Oh, yeah, I probably got scammed. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the other thing is, I mean, you know, he did it for like a day because this is the one day after interesting. Most of the Deadwood episodes are one day. They cover one like one 24 hour cycle. And this one comes right after the pilot because Al gets out of bed in the same way that he went to bed in the pilot. He he uh, he treated 
panning for gold very much like a uh, a rich child where yes. they said they wanted something very badly that was very expensive they got it for them and then they used it once and then decided they didn't want to do it anymore not- <laughs> go in and, and just take that gold mine and put it into the put it into the closet with the guitar and the karate gi that's why that's why ellsworth has such a great outlook on it when he's when he meets brahm digging for gold and he comes over and he says He's like, how's your day going? And Ellsworth says, I've met my quota for whiskey, pussy, and food. He's like, any further winnings will go straight to the Faro dealers. So he's a man who does, he just needs a little bit to get by. And then he can just stop at that point. He's not greedy in the way that, um, you know, Brahm's going to make this $20,000 thing pay off, which I imagine $20,000 in 1876 is like a lot of money, $20 million. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah and so outside of just the, uh, the skill of not hanging around with plots that don't need to be hung around with. I think that the, the, the chaos angle I think is kind of uh, like important to this episode, which is that it seems to be saying that the universe is kind of unpredictable in that there are good and bad people, but good and bad actions can kind of come just by accident the way that they work out. So like Al is the most obvious example of this, which is that Al does intend to kill the girl, Right. But Mm -hmm. things go a certain way through the actions of other characters that he he takes the sort of what the audience sees is like the better view and like the righteous option, which is to kill Persimmon Phil at the end to to just snuff it out the other way as opposed to Mm -hmm. waiting for the girl to come around. And I think that there's a lot of that stuff going on for the other character stories like like Bullock's whole thing negotiating with Swearingen, he's this uptight asshole the whole time, right? Like he's, he's insisting on these sort of rules and it's like, it has to be this way. And there's, there's, uh, there's a sort of order to things. And if you're going to try to fuck me over on the order, I'm not very happy with you. And then when he goes to the end and he has to, he's assigned this role to keep an eye on wild bill so that bill can do uh, take care of one guy and he takes care of the other bullock lies, Right. Bullock, right. Bullock yeah. goes against his entire ethos to that point where he says that he was going for his gun when it seems pretty clear to me that uh, the, the other mace, Tom Mason, was not going for his gun and Bill shot him somewhat unjustifiably in this world. And so it's it's this weird thing of like the, the best intentions to help your friend are sometimes aided by bad acts where good acts sometimes come of bad intentions, but they turn out all right. So it's it's neat. It's kind of like it's just kind of like this primordial ooze of the town is coming together when they don't have any law they don't have any contracts they don't have any sort of sense of order outside of what the people are throwing in together and how they interact with each other and i think it all works out i think it all um the storylines just play off each other nicely and they all thematically match yeah i would be um i was surprised that he went to see the girl himself if he was so concerned about her being able to finger people and yeah, talking and stuff yeah because like can't ID him i guess is the is the the she knows he can't be fingered as one of the accomplices so yeah i was just thinking though it's like he put he exposed himself way more than i think the guy he, persimmon phil did because like even i think persimmon phil his problem is that he didn't but he didn't stick to he didn't go for it and be like no absolutely she could not identify me because it was dark yeah it was in the middle of nowhere they probably, maybe not because they're dumb, but they probably had masks on or something. Yeah. I would feel pretty. I would have said, nope, there's no way she can identify me. Hey, I have to go real quick. I'll be right back. And then I would have never come back. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, they're basically just going on, I guess, if she can identify that it was not Sue, 
then it had to be these right. guys yeah, yeah, who were out yeah. there. It, but it is kind of a stretch to be able to identify him particularly. Although I think he has a line later on that he said he can't say to a moral certainty whether or not she can identify right. him. Yeah. 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 Uh, but we also learned that, um, I don't know, it made me feel kind of bad for the uh, Ned Mason in the first episode who got shot. He wasn't even there for the killing and stealing. He got scared and ran away before that happened, according yeah. to Persimmon Phil. So. Which does, again kind of bring up the question from the last episode why does he start talking so like he could have just said nothing yeah but i think you know i think it's he got uh he got a little little scaredy pants he there, got he so. got bullocked yeah he got yeah. bullocked in the eyes um so two character uh actor questions i had for you so uh milch was concerned that ian mcshane is too small to place the orange and he pictured him as a big hulking physical presence does it mm-hmm. does it bother you no not no. at all no, and, I, I wouldn't even have noticed that unless you had pointed it out. And the other one is, um, I sort of agree. I, I think that the performance is fine. He, <laughs> they don't have him do anything crazy. Like he just kind of sneaks a knife on, on someone. And it mm-hmm. uh, obviously for the character, it's all uh, attitude rather than how he looks. Right. Yeah. The other one that I was always, so I always noticed Bullock's walk, right? And I thought that. Because he, he walks like a N sixty four character. <laughs> yeah, he's got very he's got very wireframe <laughs> knees as he's like sliding. Yeah, he's got around. like a like a Team America marionette. <laughs> I always thought that that was a choice that Oliphant was making because it sort of represents a very like stick up his ass character. He walks like he's got to stick up his ass basically, right. and so I always thought that that was just him physically manifesting it, but. Uh, reading like the Deadwood Bible about the backstory, apparently it was like a huge problem for a lot of producers the way that the, he walks, and they didn't like it. And um, oh, that's just how he lo- how he that's how Timothy Oliphant walks. Yeah, that's they have all the other people saying that's just how Tim walks. And some people were oh. like, I kind of like it, but other people were just like, this is not a correct walk for this character. I just don't think that it works. <laughs> apparently, they'll fix it in a couple episodes with the lens choice that they use to shoot it, and it kind of reconciles it at that point. But he was uh, on the cutting block for a long time, and apparently the main reason was that they couldn't shoot him from a distance because they just didn't like the way it looked. Wow. Does it bother you at all? I noticed it, but I wouldn't say it bothers me. <clears throat> yeah, I definitely noticed it, but I I didn't think it was like really distracting or anything. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just. But yeah, I, I also I registered it the same way you did, where I was like, "Oh, okay, this must be some sort of a choice." Yep. No, just how the man walks when he's the hitman, Agent Forty Seven, or something like that. Walks exactly <laughs> the same way. Um, outside that, we look at some backstory on Calamity Jane. She has her sequence where she fails to protect uh, the girl the, from Swearingen when he comes in to check on her and see what's going on. Um, I like that, that scene. That was amazing. Yeah they're, yeah, they're good together. What do you want? Doc asked me to see your patient. What for? What do you know about it? Who the fuck are you? Don't you fucking ignore me! You don't want to interfere with me. You think I'm scared of you? Sure you are. If I take a knife to you, you'll be scared worse than a long time dying. I ain't scared to die. I ain't scared of nobody. Get away. Get away from her. Leave. Leave. 
Leave that little one alone. Leave her alone! Hello. Leave her! Leave her! Leave her alone! Cocksucker! Do it to me if you have to! Why would I do it to you? If I take my knife to you, you'll be scared worse in a long time dying. Uh, is a good Swearingen quote. You you learn that she's been sexually abused when she was younger. Um, it does the clever oh. thing of tying in their constant use of the word fuck with her literally using it correctly uh, uh, in that scene and uh, implying that uh, not just I implying, did, but she got fucked. Okay, I didn't take that literally. I thought she was talking metaphorically, but I guess. Yeah, yeah no, it's it's interesting because that scene is she does not understand what's so it's it's hard to parse because as an audience member it's different for you so like she does not know why Swearingen has come in to see the girl at all right oh and she okay. assumes he's there to rape her yeah that makes more sense and now. that's okay, why she yeah. says do it to me instead of her and he but Swearingen is using the audience's perspective which is that he's there to kill and he says why would I kill you at that point yeah not understanding what she's talking about and then she says to the doc that she's been fucked by harder men than him and younger than when the girl was and stuff like that so you get a a sense of where jane is coming from and her um her performative maleness makes more sense at that point just as Mm. a kind of like false bravado and a i guess you could read it as like a psychological thing to like make her unappealing to rape in some way to make her more masculine and less feminine yeah yeah yeah, she's uh, uh, that scene was really, really good. Um, I mean, she's just such an interesting character because she, it's, you know, it makes me wonder: is she just bluster, all bluster, full stop, or is is her reaction due solely to some sort of triggering of this this past trauma that she had? Yeah. Um, but either way, I mean, like it's. It's so like there's there's so many aspects of it that are so interesting because that scene's really good, and then the scene where she goes, "I gotta go kill somebody," yeah, <laughs> and you know she she's overcompensating because of how easily she crumbled, and she's got this this big facade that that she holds up, and then my favorite part, which is when uh, after Charlie stops her, she's her. <laughs> She's like, she did basically what I would do. I did this one time. I basically did this one time when I was younger mm-hmm. because uh, there was like a, there was a fight about starting to break it. When I, I'm, t- I'm talking like, I'm talking like 12. Yeah. It was like a, a, a fight starting to break out or something outside of my house with the guy across the street and some younger kids. Uh, and so my dad went out there to kind of like break it up. And I was like fucking terrified. I yeah. was like, I don't know <laughs> the world what's is going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. I don't <laughs> know who's, if someone's getting like my dad went out with a hockey stick and shit yep. and he never, never, ever did that stuff. Yep. And so when he came back in, I was like, okay, cool. It's all, it's all set. All right. What if I just like, you know what? I'm going to hang out by the window. I'll just watch. Like there was nobody. Everyone was gone. Like nothing was going to happen. And you I was triangulated like, I'm just, them. You triangulated them. Yeah, exactly. Any I'm just like, you know, if them. something else happens, I'll see it. <laughs> and then we can deal with, I can tell somebody else about it. <laughs> and like, that was, that's such a great moment when she's like, okay, well, I'm going to stay here in the middle and then I can see if something's going to happen. Like yep. she doesn't, she doesn't go over the line. She doesn't actually do the thing that's scary, Yeah, but she, she, uh, 
convinces herself that she's doing something noble and doing something important, even though she's just wasting her time, basically. Although technically not, because she does save the girl's life. So. She does, although she lets Doherty just walk past her. She doesn't recognize what's going on at that That's point. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. Well, fine. I mean, why would she? She's never, I don't think she's met that guy at that point, right? Uh, No, not face, no. She might have seen him at the gym, but she wouldn't know who he is or anything like that. Yeah. This <laughs> is the... F- the first time I noticed Dan wears a tie. Yes, he has a, like tie. a really weird looking tie. <laughs> and Charlie does too. I think Charlie's got one on too, yep. but they're like really grimy, fat, ugly ties. <laughs> Charlie Utter is a favorite of mine. Um, he's a good friend. He's a good bro to Jane where he sits with her when she's triangulating. Yeah. He, he stands yeah. with her and things like that. He also... Um, the scene where he, he's pissing on the, the wall and then yes, shits himself. That's, that's something else, that scene, yeah. Uh, uh, in evening. Uh, Bill and me didn't make it to your tent today. Tomorrow's another day. Uh, prospect. His express purpose coming to this camp. Make a mistake for his new wife. His idea. Don't suggest buying a shovel or a system cradle. Uh oh. Damn. Anyways, have a good evening. I think that's just such that's such a deadwood. It, it has that moment. He's like pissing and he shits himself, basically. And then he has this just like nice little profound talk with Bullock about like, Bullock, what's your secret? Like Bill can't do the things that you do. And, mm. you know, it's it's the, the cleverness of writing because the character doesn't seem at that point to recognize, Charlie Utter doesn't seem to recognize the like incredibly obvious weaknesses that Bullock has, but he is... He just sees the strengths that Bullock has that Wild Bill does not have, and he wishes that he could pass it along to him and ends with a little prophetic, um, just don't wait too long to tell him uh, about this. So That scene also made me think about what that place must have smelled like. Yeah, it's all. I mean, the reason that it's all muddy is because the horses are pissing all over the place, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it reminds me of years ago, my girlfriend and I went to Austin, and... Um, we did this really cool walking tour, like podcasty thing or app thing where it was like GPS led you through the town uh, yep. telling you the story of this quote unquote America's first serial killer who was in Austin in like the 1800s. And uh, there was this one part of it where you go down these these stairs down to where this uh, uh, river is like running through. And the, the, the voice on the on the headphones on the app was like, take a big whiff. Do you smell that? I'm like, yeah, it smells like fucking shit. And the voice is like, that's what everything smelled like in, back in 1885. Nobody even noticed because everything smelled like that. I'm like, okay, great, awesome. <laughs> it's those uh, Febreze commercials where someone's like sitting in a pile of dog shit and they're just like, it, smell, it smells wonderful in here because they smell Febreze. I, I I don't know if 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 this affects you as someone with kids, mm. but as someone with a dog, I am constantly worried that my house actually smells like shit, and I just can't tell. Oh yeah, I mean we call it um for the kids we call it resipu, where it's just like you you imagine the smell, but there seems to be nothing there, and it's just like oh maybe he just has like he might just be in a cloud of shit molecules or something yeah. like that, and it's just carrying up to my nose. <laughs> 
Yeah, I just, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I have an animal who lives close quarters in my house with me. So I don't, like, I don't know if my house just smells like old dog. Yeah. Because it's just, it's the only thing that I smell. So every now and then when people come over, I'm like, do people come over? I mean, people still come over. So I imagine it must not smell that bad. No. But no. it is one of those things where I think about like, does my house actually smell like fucking dog shit? Or I've never noticed it. I've never oh, noticed thanks. it. I, I, I think your house that. smells just fine. Just fine and dandy. We have lots of candles. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> huge chunks of wax. Um, I guess the last, the last sort of... Uh, plot theme or thematic stuff that's going on in this episode is the um a lot of the characters are addicted to different things um some of them are addicted to traditional addictions like laudanum for alma uh while bill is an alcoholic obviously um he's got a few things going on I think. yeah I, I, uh, they share it most obviously in the the uh, breakfast scene where his hand is shaking too much and charlie picks up the mm. coffee pot uh, pot of coffee for him and then Bill notices that Alma has the shakes as well when she picks up her coffee. Um, Bullock, I did really. I was just sorry. I was just going to say I did like the scene where she comes down and everybody stands up and takes their hat off. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the the one uh, the one true uh, you know quote unquote lady in the town. I think is mm-hmm. is Alma Garrett. Um, the other addictions are like people are always looking for um, Al's approval. Like Dan Doherty and Trixie are kind of. Uh, for that kind of thing you could argue that doc is addicted to um helping the people of the town and stuff like that bullock's addicted to rage essentially is his (laughs) his addiction so it's is uh i would say the doc is the doc on he's got to be on something isn't he is he addicted is he got like a heroin addiction or something Mm -hmm. he looks like he's fucked up all the time yeah i think he's just i think he's just stressed out um yeah i think he just drinks i don't think he's on anything i don't think we've seen an implication so far that he he uses anything Mm -hmm. um the, the the girls in the gym, the whores, are clearly using some sort of... I, guess, I wonder if heroin was being used at this point or was it just... Uh, there's a difference, right? Like you have to get heroin from opium, I think. But I wonder if... I think there's a difference. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just kind of... The characters are all driven by something at this point mm-hmm. that is uh, causing them damage. It's the ties back to the deep water title. They're addictions tend to lead them into deeper and deeper waters and some of them might not make it out uh, in time to survive the end of the season um anything else here did you have anything else you, you want to say about this I, those, those are my main uh observations about this episode i i like this one a lot uh i think i like this one more than the pilot it, it's interesting because i feel like they had a chance to actually settle into the character stuff once once the sort of like pilot shenanigans of like setting everything up are out of the way, I feel like the show more quickly develops into what I'm familiar with it, which is that it's really just a lot of characters talking to each other in the way that they talk to each other in this episode. Mm, yeah. I, um, I think I would agree with that. Like this, the first, the pilot's good, but this feels more like the show. I remember not, not that the pilot doesn't, but this one just feels like everything's kind of like clicking a little bit and everything's moving and, and you're starting to see how these people are all really starting to interact and stuff. And it's it's good. It's 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 it sets a lot of things forward. Like The thing that I really like about it is it has interesting plot lines that you're engaged in, even though you don't totally know how they 
what their purpose is in a larger sense. Yeah. Like the stuff with killing the child is interesting uh, independently of no having any idea about why Al wants to kill her. Right. Like there's there's some implication that he's involved somehow, but we don't really know how. And I'm sure that's probably going to expand out even further. Um, but it's still engaging even even without that stuff because I think that the, the, the stuff they're doing inside that is so good. Yeah. Like if you didn't have great scenes like the stuff with Calamity Jane, and I, I don't think it would be that interesting. Yeah. But um, the the smaller elements are so interesting that the that the that the larger elements kind of uh, you, you can let them hang a little bit a little bit looser. Something that the uh, the pilot didn't do, I think, because it didn't have time, because it was more dedicated to setting stuff up, is that this episode is one that the characters who are having interactions have multiple scenes with each other through the episode. So there's like mm. a little bit of a um, a development to their conflict and the the yeah. thing that they're talking about. The pilot didn't have time to do that, and I think that the, I think that it benefits this show um, to do that because because the show is so built around dialogue and language and the characters interacting with each other. Um, I just, I'm, I'm sort of, I mean, I know I have the history of knowing the show pretty well, but it's like, it's sort of incredible to me that the characters are all so well thought out immediately with each other. Like there's Mm. no, there doesn't feel, there's no sense of like trying to figure out what this character is or what that character is doing. Or like, we're just going to have this character hang around for a little while until we figure out what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They all, they all know what they're they all know what they are, and there was some sort of screenwriting quote about it that's like um, someone had said that characters in written things are supposed to be like chemicals or reactions, which is basically like they have their own little beaker that they are as a character of like a certain mm-hmm. kind of reaction, but when yeah. you combine them with another beaker, it causes a whole different thing to happen yeah. out of it, mm-hmm. and I think that this show does that well. Yeah. Again, it's what makes me so impressed with Calamity Jane because looking at the characters they introduce in the first episode, I think you would be uh, more than justified to expect Wild Bill to have like more of a role. Yeah. Yeah. He's got that cool factor. He's the cool. Yeah. He's got the he's got the cool fact, but they are obviously clearly subverting that by making him kind of a a loser. Yeah. Um. And and I think Calamity Jane very easily could have been just someone on the periphery who comes in and says cunt a bunch of times or something, and then yep. you know that's kind of it for the episode. But they they just lean into that stuff, and they kind of Bill has his purpose, but he's kind of periphery, and Jane actually gets the meat of uh, gets some some meat from the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Jane had not been developed, her character is unbearable. I think. You know, if yes. if if, it, yeah. if she's just that loudmouth character who <laughs> yeah. doesn't have uh-huh. a like a personality that informs why she is that way, it would just be like, what what is this performance? Like, why is she acting this way? Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's a, it, it'll be one of the strengths of Milch. I think is that all the writers in the in the Deadwood Bible and stuff that I was reading is just that he was. People would say that his greatest trait as a writer, or one of his stronger traits, is that he was not so egotistical to insist that the actors can't change the character that he had Mm. set up in his Mm. mind and would frequently just inform the characters that he was writing with the traits of the actors and like sort of adapt characters to better suit the actors that they had hired to play them instead Mm. of insisting that they go one direction. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Comes yeah. through. Good, I mean, good for him. Yeah, Weigart is um, clearly has the range to do that uh, with the <laughs> with a Calamity Jane character. So, um, Mr. Milch, this is Timothy Oliphant. I've decided <laughs> I'd like to do. I'm walking over right now. <laughs> I'd like to do an interesting accent for this Seth Bullock. We don't know where he's from. He's from Canada. We don't know what they sound like up there. <laughs> so I've decided this is what the character will be moving forward. Yeah, a lot of the actors had tried out for different roles, I think, which is the thing too. But they ended up settling it. It ties into that Milch thing of what he was doing. But like Trixie mm-hmm. was supposed to be Alma Garrett at first. That's what they brought her in for. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Dan Doherty was supposed to be oh someone else. He, he was supposed to be someone who just it wouldn't have made much sense at all if he had turned out to be that character. And obviously, Powers Booth is supposed to be Swearingen and stuff like that. So, um. People kind of yeah, chips fell where they lay. I always I find that stuff so fascinating because I always wonder how much of that is like legitimate and how much of it is like ah eh, fuck it let him read for other stuff like yes when they when you say oh yeah uh, Tom Hiddleston read for Thor it's like they weren't going to cast that guy's Thor yeah. he's <laughs> he's he's way too Loki ish to be Thor well there's there's a couple of um, examples in the book of the the actors would come in and say like. I know I've um, I know I'm in here for part A, but I would really like to read part B. And they'd say yeah. like, okay. And so he'd read part B, and then the producers and Milch would look at him and go, "That's great, but can you read the part that we brought you in here?" To do? <laughs> so he technically read for part B, but there was no ever he was never going to get part B. You know what I mean? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, uh, the one that I know of, only because it's a prerequisite of any show I'm on that I bring this up, is uh, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. Um. Sarah Michelle Gellar read for the part of Cordelia, and Charisma Carpenter read for the part of Buffy. Yeah, and they ended up switching those. So. Yep, and and, and uh, millions of dollars go into the other bank account just at the flip of a switch like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's you. It's it's a nice story when you're on the receiving end of like the the bigger the bigger win. I guess like uh, when you look at it that way. Um, any other things about this one? I think we've pretty much covered. Everything there is. Um, I Bill and Jack remember. continue to have great interactions. Where if the jackpot's yeah. irritating me, you're yes. the fucking winner. <laughs> I'm out for a couple. Go get you some more ammo, Wild Bill. That, that kind of looks bound to turn. Your name's Jack. Yeah, that's correct. What are you in the game for, Jack? What am I in it for? If irritating me's the jackpot, you got the job done. What are you in this for? Uh, I, I can't remember. I must have watched this before I watched Parks and Rec. But even after, I, Ron's, uh, Nick Offerman's like unrecognizable in this. He is, yeah. Yep. Even his voice it like it is a little bit different enough that I don't know if I would have picked it up. Yep. He's also filthy. The, the yes, whole that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to identify. He's heavier, too. He's he- yeah, he's, he's, he's much, bit, he's much chubbier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's he's a, although he's um he's subtly funny in this one too. He's like he's one, good, yeah. one more shot. I'm going to get that cocksucker. Maybe a little bit more coffee too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Any funny lines stick out for you in this one? I, I see mm-hmm. as much misery out of them moving to justify themselves as them that set out to do harm. He's got a mean way of being happy. That's Here's my counter offer to your counter offer. Go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that one not as good in real negotiations as you might think the the my favorite negotiation uh from 
saw from Seth and uh, Swearingen is when they break after their first meeting, Swearingen says, me and you are going to find our proper stride. (laughs) 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 Just we'll figure out how to deal with each other. Trixie has Mr. The Best Blowjob in Bath is only 12 steps away. Uh, Is is Seth unreasonably mean towards Swearingen at this point in their relationship? Uh, yes, he is. Because I feel like Al has not really poked that bear. Well, why do you, the, why do you think he is unnecessarily mean? If you do think, do you think he's justified in being unnecessarily mean, or he does he have a rationale? Well, that's for the it? thing. I don't know if he does because he's had half an interaction with the guy, and then when they go back to meet at night, when he comes over, Seth just stands up and he's like, "Saul will be my proxy," and then he leaves mm-hmm. in a big huff. And if I like, I kind of, I'm kind of on Swearingen's team at that point, where it's like, "What the? Well, I didn't do anything. This fucking guy. What's his problem?" Yeah, yeah. No, I, like I'm sure he can smell it on him that he's a that he's a a. a, a That's what I would think. Is that he's a good enough cop to recognize what yeah. Swearingen is, and I think that yeah. that irritates and I, him. I, I another thing I do like about that that sequence is that Al's proposition and the um terms that he sets are not unreasonable in general but Seth's response to that that he's like I'm not going into business with this guy is also very perfectly reasonable <laughs> <laughs> given what we know about that guy it is a very correct response yeah i i was um on the terms of the deal i was actually a little bit confused is the deal 500 now and half the net and then you square up to a thousand, or is it half the net, and then you owe another five hundred at the end of that period? I think it was half the net until October, and then they were square. I'm not a hundred percent sure. So he, so Al is only getting a thousand dollars at most out of this deal. I think I could be wrong. Well, I mean, depends on what their net is, I guess. Oh, sure, right. If they do, if they do better, it could go over a thousand. But otherwise, yeah. okay. I say. I think so. Yeah, I didn't. It's not. Um, I mean, Al's whole thing is like, I got to get to know you. I don't know who the right. fuck you are. Like, how about right. how about we sort of figure things out and you stop yelling at me and threatening me and then we'll we'll be able to see where we stand. Um, and how many haircuts does a barber have to do to pay off $600 back then? That must yeah, have been... seriously. That's a yeah. tremendous amount well, of Well, I mean, that's also... There's no guarantee that he gave them that same deal because, you know, it, he, oh, right. that he gave the barber the same deal because he's obviously trying to get something out of them as much as they are him, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I knew you were an earner the minute you walked in here. <laughs> you bastard. Um, yeah, that's it. Oh, I guess the uh, the, the other the recurring motif just before we go, the last thing is um, Reverend Smith's uh, passages that he reads. Yeah, I really like that guy. I think he's really good. Yeah, he's um again. He's, it's, he, the earnestness of him is upsetting yeah. to Seth. <laughs> it's not like that. I think it's upsetting to kind of everybody. It I think is. it's, it's, they have a it's hard time. earnestness. The earnestness is charming, but it also feels kind of psychotic. Well, it which, ties it ties into what he says. So his passage right. is: "Your ways are not our way, O Lord. We abide the just and unjust alike under your tearless eye. Tearless, not because you do not see not see us, but because you see what we are so well." Our Christ, as he was crucified, addressed the thief who was hanging by his side. Verily I say unto thee, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Your ways are not our ways, O Lord. We abide the just and the unjust alike under your tearless eye. Tearless, not because you do not see us, 
but because you see what we are so well. And the reverend's uh, sort of eulogies and passage readings are going to largely tie into the themes of the episodes and the seasons as he does them. But it is a, he makes people uncomfortable because much like God in that passage, he sees what everyone else is mm-hmm. in, in his own way. And they, where, where the reverend is earnest with himself and honest with himself about what he is. Bullock in particular is not honest with himself, and that's why it upsets him when he when he says that to him. So yeah, uh, that's it. I guess we're done with deep water. One eight seven on an undercover cop. Um, anything else that you wanted to say before we uh, wrap this one up, Clay? Uh, I don't think so. No, I Check think out the other it. shows that we do. Yep. That'd be nice. Rotten Horror Picture Show, Horror Movie Podcast. Badass podcast, Batman and the Animated Series podcast. It's all out there. We spend too much time doing this, and uh, we need people to listen to it. That's so. right. It's out there. I don't know. Because uh, I need to justify it to my God, <laughs> which is my mortgage payment. Well, I see as much misery coming out of you moving to justify your podcast as those that record the podcast <laughs> in the go. first place. There you go. <laughs> Set you up for one at the end there. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening to Something Pretty. We are on to episode three at this point, which I think is reconnoitering the rim, which is what I did to your mother last night, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we're going to be back with that one. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.